From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The first Black quarterback in pro football was Marlon Briscoe, but his road to that role with the Denver Broncos was bumpy. The Black quarterback story is a story of opportunity. Denied for many, many years, finally grudgingly allowed Mm. opportunities to Black quarterbacks. So here's a guy that squeezed through the cracks and got an opportunity, but, you know, it was still denied in the long run. We'll speak with the author of Rocket Men, the Black quarterbacks who revolutionized pro football and the progress we see today, including at CU. And later, slow down. A lower speed limit could be coming to a road near you in Colorado. We really want to weigh what the purpose of the roadway is. Are there more vulnerable road users? And that's a different weight than we put on it before. I'm Mark Flynn, and I donated my car to CPR. It wouldn't go into first gear anymore, but it was running. The process was just as described, seamless, easy, and allowed me to make my first significant gift to Colorado Public Radio. Selling a car requires posting information, responding, haggling with would-be buyers. That sounded like a hassle to me. It was more important to me to make an investment in Colorado Public Radio. It's easy to donate your car. Just go to CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Football season is underway, and once again, all eyes are on the home team, the Denver Broncos, especially quarterback Russell Wilson after arguably a pretty disappointing first season with the team. The big question on the minds of many is whether this season he will live up to his $245 million contract. So far, the Broncos are off to a rough start, and some might argue that Wilson has some extra pressure on him to represent as a black quarterback. Despite a high number of black players in the National Football League, the position of quarterback has almost always been dominated by white players. John Eisenberg has written a book that provides an historical perspective. It's called Rocket Men, the Black Quarterbacks Who Revolutionized Pro Football. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. Quarterbacks are widely considered the heart of a football team, definitely a focal point, the leader of the offense, and often the face of the franchise. White players have dominated this role. Why is that? For many years, sort of the thinking that a lot of teams had, and and of course, these are the NFL, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. You're looking at all white owners, all white coaches, all white general managers, everyone making all decisions are white. And they had skepticism whether a a black man could be a quarterback in the NFL. The position was complicated. It was glamorous. And I think some of these guys, it was just a racist ideology. That's the only way to put it. There were questions that were persistent. Were they smart enough to run an offense? Were they disciplined enough to practice as hard as they needed to? Could they lead? Could they perform in the clutch? Just just one thing after the other, one question after the other, based on nothing, you know, because none of the black quarterbacks had ever played in the NFL. And so that was a very tough ideology to crack. You know, we're really talking about a story of, of black leadership, you know, in a white institution. And it took decades. I mean, the NFL was formed in 1920, and uh, the first pro quarterback 
with Marlon Briscoe there in Denver in 1968. So that's almost a half century just to get a guy on the field. And it's taken decades after that just for some of that ideology to wane, to crack, to be disproven. And so it's a long, slow process that I detail in my book. Of course, today we celebrate Marlon Briscoe as a trailblazer and the Broncos get credit for having him as the first black quarterback in the late 60s, as you mentioned. But his road to that role was actually quite bumpy. Here's some of what he had to say when my co-host Ryan interviewed him back in 2018. When I got drafted out of college in the 14th round by the Broncos, they, of course, drafted me as a defensive back. Uh, that's what they did to black quarterbacks who, if they did make it to the collegiate level playing quarterback, that's what they did. They said that, you know, you're a great athlete, so you can play other positions. What do you think their reasoning was? Well, because they didn't think a black man could think, throw, and lead on that level. I had a stellar career in college as a quarterback. I made All-American, and I negotiated my own contract. And in those negotiations, you know, I told the Bronco Brass that I would play defensive back, but they had to give me a three-day trial at quarterback. They thought I was crazy. How are the 14th round draft choice when it's only 17 rounds going to dictate you know, the conditions of uh, of a contract. I said, well, you know, that's what I'm going to do. If if I can't get that three-day trial, I was going to go ahead and teach school. All I wanted was a form to showcase my skills. I never thought that I was going to get, you know, a level playing field, but they acquiesced to my so-called demands. Where did you get the, the confidence to ask for those three days? Well, you know, first of all, you know, we're talking about the 60s where black America had different approach to life and and self-esteem. We as African-Americans wanted to be heard, especially 1968. 1968 was one of the most pivotal years of change in the history of this country, if not the world. And so it was seemed like appropriate time (laughs) that somebody stood up. That was Denver Broncos player Marlon Briscoe speaking with my co-host Ryan Warner in 2018. Sadly, Briscoe passed away in June of 2022 at the age of 76. John, so what do you find most fascinating about Marlon Briscoe's story? Well, Mar Marlon's an amazing figure in this story for the simple fact that, yes, I mean, he was drafted as a defensive back. Everything that he said, they didn't let a guy like him play quarterback, even though he had shown in college that he was really good. Even after that trial that he got in training camp, he was playing defensive back for the Broncos as a rookie, sitting on the bench, and they had a number of other white quarterbacks ahead of him, and they all got hurt is what happened. And during that trial, he'd shown that he had a nice arm, and he was a he, he was a good quarterback. So they had no choice. The Broncos had no choice. Uh, they thought, well, we're going to do this. We're going to put him in. Lou Saban was the coach, and they just put him on the field, started as a substitute, and he did well enough that he became a starter towards the end. It wasn't a great season for the Broncos. Uh, they had a losing record, I think. But uh, Marlon started five games for them there towards most of them in the second half of the season. And he he was close to spectacular. He ran around. He threw passes. He ran for gains. He led the team. Uh, they didn't win all the games. Like I said, they weren't that good. But uh, the team and they, the defense was bad and all that. But 
Marlon was very impressive. And uh, anybody that watched football could see this guy could certainly play quarterback in, in pro football. He was doing it. And so what happened, you know, I mean, if you fast forward a little bit after the season, uh, a lot of the players on the Broncos thought, well, we found ourselves quarterback going forward. We're th- This is great. But uh, the Broncos immediately pivoted away from him. They had uh, several of the white quarterbacks they'd had on the team were healthy again. They traded for another one. And when they had quarterback meetings, off-season meetings, to sort of go over strategy and the playbook and everything and brought everybody together, they didn't even invite Marlon. Marlon mm. read about it in the newspaper. And he he they, they were shutting him out of the quarterback position. They had no intention of going forward with him as a quarterback. That was absolutely clear to him, to anyone. And so he, he asked to be traded. And, uh, you know, he wanted to leave the team. So... In order to have an NFL, a, a pro football career, he had to change teams and change positions. So what happened to him was was totally in keeping with what happened to black quarterbacks back in that era. He went to the Buffalo Bills as a wide receiver, played well for the Bills, got traded to the Miami Dolphins, and had a couple of great seasons on championship teams. And everybody remembered him as being a member of these great Miami Super Bowl winning teams. But uh, in the long run, what he's best known for is he got onto the field. There were no other black quarterbacks in professional football. Really, his historical legacy is that he got on the field as a quarterback for one year, half a year, and did a great job. But uh, what happened to him shows exactly the fight uh, that lay ahead. And that was, you know, he just got shut out. You weren't going to get a chance. You know, it happened once. It was a borderline miracle. But, you know, it was not going to happen again to him. And so his story is a real microcosm of the entire story. Yeah, to your point, he won two Super Bowls with the Miami Dolphins, and he was a receiver on the 1972 Dolphins team that finished with a perfect season. A great football player and had an excellent career. And uh, when uh, they uh, that, that undefeated team, of course, is famous, and uh, there was a point in the 2009 or 10, they came to the White House, and President Obama was going down the line shaking hands with him. He got to Marlin. He goes, I know you. He said, I know you. You're the trailblazer. You were the trailblazer at quarterback. And, you know, Marlin's, Marlin, I don't know exactly what he said, but I think he was he was pretty honored and flattered uh, that he was recalled that way. And, uh, you know, that that is certainly his legacy, the first modern pro black quarterback. I'm sure he and Obama could relate to being first. <laughs> Absolutely. A lot of people are very gracious, you know, the whole it's just an honor to be nominated kind of ideology. But from my understanding, Briscoe never forgot the fact that he lost his starting job in Denver without explanation at all. He thought the hard part was that they would ever let him on the field. Mm-hmm. He didn't think that would happen. And so when they did, what he couldn't figure out was, OK, then they plagued me for better or worse. And I really did well. I just didn't understand that. You know, why? Playing well didn't mean that I could continue to have a chance. The black quarterback story is a story of opportunity. Um, Denied for many, many years, finally grudgingly allowed opportunities Mm. to black quarterbacks. So here's a guy that squeezed through the cracks and got an opportunity, but, you know, it was still denied in the long run. And so he never could figure that out. He had a close friend in Buffalo, James Harris. Mm-hmm. who was one of the first pro-black quarterbacks. I interviewed James. He said he thought Marlon was bitter. Marlon said, no, I'm not bitter. 
I just don't understand uh, really why it happened. It's a bit of a mystery, but when you really look at the long story, the long history of the black quarterbacks, sort of that sort of denial was very common. So what he, what he experienced was what a lot of other people experienced, which was, you know, your opportunities just taken away. The Broncos also had Teddy Bridgewater, and now we have Russell Wilson. Yes. And doing this book, I came across a historian in Chicago who's done unbelievable research on this team by team, player by player, year by year, going back to 1953. And some teams had done more than others. Uh, you know, the Broncos were not at the forefront of that, you know, that even though they had Marlon Briscoe, they were predominantly white quarterbacks. There were some black quarterbacks along the way. You know, the, the door had opened wide and a lot of teams were taking chances, certainly in this century. You know, the situation is not what it was. But certainly the Russell Wilson acquisition, what it shows you as much as anything is the degree to which no longer are NFL teams seeing color at that position. Certainly, if there's a quarterback they want and that quarterback happens to be black, it just doesn't matter. That was not a factor in the Broncos' decision-making to give up as much as they did and to give him all the money they did. So that certainly is a bellwether. It shows you where things stand now. This was a trade. They acquired him in a trade, and uh, there were you would not see teams trading for a black quarterback. And I'm talking just 15 years ago, you wouldn't have seen it. So things are changing dramatically. The manner by which uh, Wilson got to Denver certainly is an indication of that. In researching for this segment, I learned the year of the first Super Bowl, which was 1966, there were no black quarterbacks in the AFL or NFL. I also read that the year of 1977, which happens to be the year that Tom Brady was born, there had never been an NFL game where both teams started black quarterbacks. And at the time when Brady was drafted, there had never been two black quarterbacks to face off in an NFL playoff game ever. And that brings us to 2023, the Super Bowl that featured two black quarterbacks, Patrick Mahomes and Jalen Hurts. Yes, all those stats you, you cite are accurate. And hey, I'll give you another one. It wasn't until 2017 six years ago, that the NFL could say that every team in their league had started a black quarterback in a game. Why? Right? That was not the case until 2017. The last team to do it was the New York Giants, founded in 1925. So almost a century earlier, they'd always started a white quarterback, okay, every game. So finally that ends uh, in 2017, and every team has started a black quarterback. You can add that to the list of things that you accurately depicted there. Going forward now, I mean, just six years later, the situation has, has really changed, and that was in evidence by the fact that Patrick and uh, Jalen Hurts uh, started the Super Bowl. That was huge. And then just a few months later in the NFL draft, Three of the first four players selected were black quarterbacks. Mm. Another moment where you can say, wow, these guys are talented and, and great pro prospects and the teams want them. It's, it's sad that we're talking about it in 2023, personally, but, you know, it at least shows that finally, you know, getting beyond some of that ideology. In my intro, I said that all eyes are on the Broncos right now, but truth be told, even more eyes are on the CU Buffs team right now. Thanks to the arrival of Coach Prime, Deion Sanders, they've had a great start led by his son, Shadur Sanders, who is, of course, a black quarterback. What do you think needs to be done to recruit more black quarterbacks on the college level? Well, Shadur Sanders is a great example. Uh, you know, he certainly brings to the fore 
many aspects of the story. He was at an HBCU before he came to Colorado. That's historically and, black college. Uh, and there were there were a lot of doubts about that level of football. So uh, that, that's one thing that had to be overcome. And he's obviously a great football player. He's done a terrific job. He's got a great future. And he's come of age at a time when the opportunities are there. Certainly, black quarterbacks actually had chances in college football before the pros. It became more prevalent for uh, black quarterbacks to play in the 1980s, 1990s. There were far more in college football than the pros. And, uh, you know, not so many in the South, the Southwest, different parts of the country. But, of course, even that has changed long ago. It's fascinating to watch him. And, and uh, it again, what, what, what did I say earlier? This is a story of opportunity. And all he is getting is opportunity, finally. And look what he's doing with it. it with the, the talent was never the question. It was the opportunity to play at this level. And uh, he is proving himself to be, uh, you know, more than up to it. And uh, certainly changing uh, even more minds uh, as we go, almost on a weekly basis. Today, we're talking about the historical perspective of the dearth of black quarterbacks over the years in professional football. But there's also been a huge discussion about the need for more black coaches in the NFL. Do you consider these two issues related? I do. And here's how it comes about in my mind. If you go through the, the coaching ranks, the, the, the lack of black coaches is a huge problem right now in the NFL. Uh, head coaches and not enough black coordinators, you know, major assistant coaches, position coaches coming through the ranks. It's improving, but yes, you need more of that. The way the situations are related is this, where there is, in this day and age today, if you're Russell Wilson or if you're Patrick Mahomes, you're coming out of college, you're a star, Lamar Jackson, uh, you're going to get drafted. You're going to get an opportunity. Those high draft picks, they're going to play. That's great. But what we have not seen much of is the journeyman, you know, the the black backup quarterback, mm -hmm. a guy that maybe isn't a star. He's just for lack to use a sports term, just a guy. All right. And he's maybe can play 10 years, mostly as a backup. Just haven't seen many black players in that role. It seems that's sort of the last vestige of that old reflex team seem to trust white players more in that role. Uh, it's one that requires them that you know, they're not going to play. You have to be disciplined. You have to be ready. And, you know, I'm not saying that uh, they, they're, they're, the teams just automatically think the black players can't do that. But there seems to be some sort of holding back. It's improving. Teddy Bridgewater, who you mentioned earlier, would be an example of that. Uh, a guy, now he did start in Denver and he's, he's, he's bounced around the league a little bit. And he always seems that teams seem to want him and maybe he will be that role. And the reason I mention it at all is that uh, many of the coaches come through the offensive side of football. Many, many of them are quarterbacks. So, you know, some of them weren't good enough to play in the pros, but you, you'll see a quarterback become coach, and that is a real pipeline. And so the lack of this black backup quarterback to me, Doug Williams, who is the first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl, mentioned this specifically to me in our interview. He said, the more black backup quarterbacks you see, you're going to see more coaches come out of that ranks. And that could address this this coaching dearth. You know, more Teddy Bridgewaters, guys that, that are hanging around, learn the game. Because that's how you really learn pro football is uh, you hang around 10, 12 years. You're in meetings. You're carrying a clipboard. You're watching and you uh, just move naturally into coaching. 
So I think the more black quarterbacks you see in, in the NFL, maybe not necessarily star, stars, just the larger population, you're going to see more coach. And I think that has the potential to change that situation. Why do you think some of the black quarterbacks who have been successful in the NFL have trouble getting even backup jobs once they're past their prime? They don't seem to last long on the downside of their career. That's another issue that, that I, I list in my book, and that is second chances. Second chances, yes, once, even if you've been good and, and you move on, that's it. It's that backup role that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if your days as a star are over and you're a black quarterback, it's not always the easiest situation for you. One can only hope that teams come to understand that these guys that have been playing in the league eight, 10 years or whatever, they certainly could handle that role, should handle that role, and they would be great in that role. Hey, when Doug Williams won the Super Bowl for the Washington, it was then the Redskins, now the Commanders, he was a backup for half of that season. He was a backup near the end of that season. He just earned a starting job as the playoffs began. What it all says is if the superstars, no problem. But you'll know things are really changing when you see the overall population, the sort of journeyman quarterbacks, as many blacks as whites. And that is not the case at this point. This is a case where you need opportunity. One thing I cited in my book, there was uh, there was an academic study that came out about 10 years ago, and it studied just the language in which going into the draft, using draft prospects, the language that was used to describe black quarterbacks and white quarterbacks. And it was a fundamental difference. This study found that the white quarterbacks, it was always, well, they're, you know, they're smart, they're students of the game, you know. They, they understand grasping this and that. And the black quarterback was generally more so, oh, he's a great athlete and uh, amazing athletic potential. Not talking about his mind as much as his body. I, I think it's an outgrowth of that. You know, the mind is what needs to be emphasized. Uh, a guy like Patrick Mahomes, everybody sees his unbelievable arm. Well, they have no understanding of the fact or don't see the fact that he's incredibly quick at commanding, a, you know, a playbook, changing plays at the line of scrimmage, Incredibly sharp and fast. I, I think a lot of people in the Colin Kaepernick story, you know, I interviewed uh, Kaepernick's uh, offensive coordinator's first years in San Francisco. And he said, that guy, uh, what I remember most about him was he came out of college as a 4 student and it didn't matter what I put in front of him. He just, he just grabbed it in a heartbeat and complicated offensive philosophy. He could change plays at the line of scrimmage. Incredibly smart guy. And, you know, you just don't hear enough about that. And uh, when you start hearing that kind of stuff, that's when you will really know that it's changed, that people will, go, you know, comment on uh, the, the intelligence uh, as much as their athletic ability. Can you give us the Cliff Notes version of the five other quarterbacks you mentioned in your book as revolutionizing the game? I title this book Rocket Men as a compliment. Certainly, you look at the black quarterbacks playing football today. They've changed that position. The, the old stereotype of, of a white dropback quarterback, which the NFL, all NFL teams wanted really as recently as 2010. I mean, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Eli Manning just said, you know, those, those were the guys that were winning Super Bowls. All those teams wanted them. And the next example of a player like that is what they wanted. But it finally changed, I think, in 2011, 2012, coming into the league, Cam Newton, Colin Kaepernick. Uh, Russell Wilson, Robert Griffin III, four mm-hmm. guys who, who were un, 
real talents. And they, they had everything. They were smart. They were big. They were fast. They could throw just everything. And so the NFL at that point finally decided we, we're going to shed that stereotype. We're going to let these guys play how they play. Their team said, you know, we're going to take advantage of what they do. That They can run. We're not going to make them stand in the pocket. And all those guys just came in and just turned the league upside down. Kaepernick was in the Super Bowl as a second-year player. Russell Wilson was in the, won a Super Bowl as a second-year player, was back in another one as a third-year player. Those guys were just phenomenal. That began the real change of the quarterback position in the NFL. You fast forward to today, and every game you see, the quarterback is on the move. He's running around. You know, he's not stationary. And there's a lot of creativity and a lot of guesswork from defenses of what's going to happen back there. It's a far cry from what it was. And so those guys really revolutionized, I think, the sport and uh, paved the way for the guys that are that are playing now. I titled it Rocket Men because uh, if you watch them play, there's no way you can say they're anything other than Rocket Men. <laughs> but I also wanted to be serve as a compliment to the people who didn't get the chance along the way because all they lacked was opportunity. And I'm talking about Marlon Briscoe going forward. Uh, you know, there were a, a, a lot of guys that probably could have done what these those other guys did, or they didn't get the chance. But uh, let's give them their credit because uh, they were they were stars in their own right. They just didn't get the chance. As we speak, there is some notable progress in the NFL. For example, 14 black quarterbacks started in week one this year, breaking the record of 11 set last season. It's the third time in four years that a new high mark has been set in that category. And some of those starters include who we've already mentioned, but also Justin Fields, Jordan Love, Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, and Anthony Richardson, just to name a few. And the 2023 NFL Draft marked the first time in league history Black men were selected as the top three quarterbacks taken in the draft. So lots of movement in this area. There is real movement in this area, and it's uh, it's great to see, and it's long overdue. And I would say this. Uh, these guys, they're, they're really good players. They're, some of them are young. Some of them are old. Uh, it, it is finally happening. And the fact that the league put out a press release on it tells you something. Uh, <laughs> you know. So acknowledging it, acknowledging the significance, acknowledging the milestone. Yeah, that's, that's really something. That's good. I would say it, it's definitely great. It's also an indication of what could have been. When you, you go back and look at guys in the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s that didn't get that chance to play, real talented guys, the guys that are playing today stand on their shoulders. There's no question. And I, I think it's really important to shine a light on the fact that this is something that happened. Black men could not play quarterback in the NFL for a long time. And it was a classic case of denial by stereotype. And it went on and on and on. And it, it took a long time to be dispelled. Uh, you know, it makes you appreciate what's, what's going on now, makes you appreciate it more and certainly uh, feel like, you know, let's make sure that it doesn't happen again. Before we wrap up, any predictions you want to share for the 2023 NFL season? Who should we be looking at? And should Broncos fans be on Priceline right now, scoping out plane tickets and hotel rooms for Las Vegas? Super Bowl 2024 or not so much? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a fan of uh, Russell Wilson. Uh, I, I, there's two chapters on him in my book. And uh, just just a, fa a fascinating and unbelievable football player early in his career, the success he had as a young quarterback. And, uh, yeah, I'm kind of a believer. And, and uh, 
I think Sean Payton is a good coach that they've brought in there, and I think it's going to be an interesting year there. So it could be a prediction that's possible is that we're going to have two straight years of black quarterbacks starting opposite each other in the Super Bowl. Prediction. I think it's very possible. You could have Patrick Mahomes again, Lamar Jackson, and the Baltimore Ravens are, are really good. Russell Wilson in the NFC. You've got Dak Prescott and the Dallas Cowboys. They're overdue to get into a Super Bowl. It's been a long time, and there are others. Well, I'm still not so privately rooting for my hometown team, the New Orleans Saints. Who dat? <laughs> but I don't know. Maybe it's a long shot. Really fascinating information. John, thanks so much for talking with us today. Oh, it was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. That was award-winning journalist and author John Eisenberg, author of Rocket Men, the black quarterbacks who revolutionized pro football. He spoke with us about the perils and the progress of black quarterbacks in pro football from an historical context up to present day. I mentioned CU Buffs head coach Deion Sanders in that interview. He was featured on 60 Minutes Sunday as he takes the world of college football by storm. Yes, including last weekend's nail-biter victory over Colorado State University. In the interview, Sanders opened up about everything from the so-called prime effect, which, by the way, drew 8.7 million viewers to watch Colorado beat Nebraska two weeks ago, to his decision to leave Jackson State University, an historically black college, for the NCAA, which is the highest level of college football in the United States. What did you tell those kids when you left? Um, opportunity called sooner and later in life um, there will be opportunity that knocks at your door and at this juncture in my life I felt like the opportunity for not only me but for my kids as well was tremendous not only did we take several kids from that team three trainers maybe 12 to 14 staffers so we afforded to give people a tremendous opportunity here this team won one game last season. Mm-hmm. Is that, in a way, a, a point of appeal? God wouldn't relocate me to something that was successful. That don't make sense, do it? He had to find the most disappointing and the most uh, difficult task. And this is what it was. And this is what it is. And I love that. CU Buffs coach Deion Sanders speaking with journalist John Worthen on 60 Minutes. On Saturday, the CU Buffs take on the Oregon Ducks, and I suspect that, once again, America will be watching. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. In its heyday, the olive green and gold Colorado pike minnow was a big catch. Anglers a hundred years ago caught fish more than five feet long and upwards of 80 pounds, lured from rivers with hardware, or baited with frogs and chicken. But by 1973, the fish became one of the first fully protected by the Endangered Species Act. Decades of damming the riverways of the West had severely restricted its range, and stocking non-native sport fish in streams and reservoirs had introduced fierce competition. Another factor, pike minnow breed only when temperatures are just right, and summers and summertime rivers are warming. Today, just two wild populations of Colorado pike minnow remain in the upper reaches of the Colorado and Green River systems. Two to three feet long, four to nine pounds, fully grown. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. With support from Mintz Law Firm in Lakewood. 
You might be listening to this in your car right now, and if you are, take note. The Colorado Department of Transportation is lowering speed limits across the state. It's part of an effort to make roads safer. CPR's transportation reporter, Nathaniel Miner, explains. Downtown Loveland is almost a pedestrian paradise. It's got stately brick buildings, cafes and restaurants that spill out onto sidewalks. But there's one big issue. Every few minutes, a wave of traffic blows through. I don't know. I think it hurts with our ambiance. Sean Hawkins is director of Loveland's Downtown Development Authority. We're standing near the two main drags, Lincoln and Cleveland Avenues. Together, these wide, fast one-way streets also double as Highway 287. Of course, we need the traffic through here. There's benefits to it. Sometimes 11 or 12,000 cars a day is, it can pass through here. So there's a benefit to that. We want it to slow down. We want it to be quieter. The speed limit here is 30 miles per hour. Hawkins says the city told him about 80% of drivers obey the speed limit. I was like, I'm concerned about the 20% that aren't, that are going faster. And so we see cars going 50, 60 miles an hour down 287. And, um, and, and that's just not safe for a pedestrian environment. CDOT owns this road. It set the 30 mile per hour speed limit by using the traditional approach, developed in the 1960s and used nationwide since then. Benjamin Achimovich with CDOT says it's called the 85th percentile method. It's what the majority of travelers on any roadway feel comfortable driving at. The old method essentially allowed drivers to set their own speed limits by measuring the speed traffic was already going and using that data to set the limit. But Americans like big cars and driving fast in them. So the traditional approach was resulting in higher speed limits, which led to higher speeds and ultimately more dangerous crashes. So Achimovich says CDOT is embracing a new method, one that allows engineers to take into account the context of the road. We really want to weigh what the purpose of the roadway is. Are there more vulnerable road users? And that's a different weight than we put on it before. CDOT used that new technique in Loveland. The speed limit here will soon be lowered to 25 miles per hour. Other states like Oregon have adopted similar policies, and the federal government is exploring it too as a way to make roads safer. But not everyone is a fan of slower speeds. It's a low traffic day today, which kind of makes it easy for me to drive my normal speed. Warren Musselman lives in Pinewood Springs, between Lyons and Estes Park. What is your normal speed? Well, certainly at least the speed limit, 45, is what, you know, I've I've gotten used to here. And I know I kind of get a little annoyed when people go slower than that. Musselman is driving me down this relatively rural highway. He keeps it between 50 and 55 miles per hour. Then we get to a stretch where CDOT recently used the new approach and lowered the speed limit to 40 because semi-trucks were regularly crashing. He says the lower speeds are a pain in the butt. Usually when I'm going to town, I'm a man on a mission. I'm going to Home Depot, I'm going to the grocery store, or I'm going to doctor's appointments. And I know exactly how long it takes, even leaving five or 10 minutes extra, sometimes I'm still late and it's because of traffic moving slower than the speed limit. Musselman admits he likes to drive fast, but he says his complaints are about more than just that. He's worried about safety too, 
because locals like him drive fast and tourists in heavy trucks drive really slow. I think that the lower speed limit has actually made it more dangerous because you have greater speed differentials that are occurring between local residents who drive the road at 50, 55, 60, uh, and you've got people who are driving 40. Achimovich with CDOT says wide gaps in speed between drivers is a big problem across the state. One solution is to set different speed limits for cars and big trucks. Another is more enforcement. Lawmakers recently expanded where speed cameras can be used. So it's quite possible that Colorado drivers will soon see lower speed limits in more places, and they'll have a financial incentive to follow them. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. Read more about this evolution of speed limits at CPR.org. This week in 1961, President John F. Kennedy signed the Peace Corps Bill. He wanted Americans to go overseas, to live in other countries, to serve people, and to learn from them. Here is Kennedy in a recruitment video from the Oval Office. The willingness of all Americans, men and women, young and old, to serve in the Peace Corps, to serve in all parts of the world, to serve at little pay, to do jobs that uh, most of them have never done before, is one of the most encouraging manifestations of the American spirit that this country has seen in many years. The Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged, our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. Denver filmmaker Alana DeJoseph served in Mali, West Africa in the early 90s. In April, we spoke about her documentary called A Towering Task, the story of the Peace Corps. John F. Kennedy's administration was new and pretty much anything looked like it was possible. Even what was then the dream of sending people to the moon. It seems like the Peace Corps kind of caught the mood of the moment. What were those early days like after it was established? It was exciting. There was glamour around the Peace Corps. Everybody wanted to somehow be involved with the Peace Corps. It wasn't just the big talk around town in Washington, D.C. The entire country was excited about this new idea. And Sergeant Shriver, John F. Kennedy's brother-in-law, who was appointed as the first director of the Peace Corps, he rode that wave. He was so thrilled about creating this brand new agency, this brand new concept in how do we relate to the rest of the world that he pulled people from all over the country, from all kinds of professions, from all kinds of backgrounds. And mm. so he had all these brilliant minds coming together. And there were no limits on who he called in. He had, I think, a basketball star. He had people out of academia. He had people from the nonprofit sector. He just pulled everybody in. And it was so exciting, just a thrilling time, a very hopeful time. When you talk about it, I really get that sense of the excitement that was there. So... There were skeptics of the idea early on. What were their arguments? Well, the Foreign Service establishment especially was very concerned because they were worried that these would be untrained young people that would be not sensitive to the diplomatic efforts going on around the world. And so mm. they were afraid that these young volunteers would be tripping over the rules, would be offending different cultures, would be getting Americans into trouble all around the world. And in many ways, the opposite happened. The volunteers and you know, a lot of contemporary volunteers you talk to, they find themselves out there in the field 
far from the capitals usually, really getting to know the cultures of the different countries. And they come back to the capital for training or for whatever needs um, they have. And they will look at the foreign service establishment saying, you don't know what's going on in the country because you people don't really leave the capital all that much. And we're the ones who are out in the field. So it's so interesting to see what concerns were out there. And then, of course, the various countries around the world were not sure what this Peace Corps thing was going to be. Of course, it's a political gesture when you have Sergeant Shriver showing up in your country saying, hey, we invented this new thing. We've got the Peace Corps. Can we send you some volunteers? Mm. The answer isn't necessarily always, yes, absolutely, we need volunteers, but it's the, okay, the brother-in-law of the U.S. president is asking me. So how is it handled? Is it really something that the country needs or is it something that is being invited for diplomatic reasons? It's not always that clear cut. So in India, when Sergeant Shriver showed up, the response was very clear. It was the, oh, yes, send us your young people. They have much to learn from us, Mm. which just was so insightful right away from the beginning, realizing that the Peace Corps was not going to be America, you know, neocolonialism, white saviorism heading around the world, sharing this wisdom, but really more learning humility, learning to listen, connecting on a people-to-people level, and appreciating the fact that we oftentimes know very little and have so much to learn from the rest of the world. Well, I'm going to ask you about that savior idea a little bit later, but what sparked this big idea of sending American volunteers overseas? John F. Kennedy had a very international mindset from the beginning. Mm. So he was very interested in connecting on more diplomatic levels and less on a war level or resource or transactional level. And I understand he actually mentioned it and made a campaign promise, essentially, to create this. Yes. So so it wasn't purely his idea. I don't want to misstate this. He was the one who made it a reality. Hubert Humphrey had already mentioned the Peace Corps. There was grew out of this notion of the point four program of engaging with economic development with other countries. Mm -hmm. And there were all kinds of other efforts going on in some other countries. So Canada had something going on. Great Britain had something going on. Australia had something going on already where they were sending volunteers to other countries to work with other cultures. What made Peace Corps very unique in many ways. And it continues to be one of the only programs that has such a balance in its philosophy between cultural exchange and economic development. Hmm. So Peace Corps' mission is world peace and friendship. It's a giant umbrella and it's very nebulous and it's hard to pin down what that really means. But it says it wants to achieve this mission through three goals. And the first goal is to send trained people to other countries that request them. So this is capacity building. This is what we kind of see as traditional economic development. But then goal two is for other cultures to get to know Americans. And goal three is for Americans to get to know other cultures. So two-thirds of the mission are about cultural exchange. And A lot of development agencies or a lot of countries that formed organizations similar to the Peace Corps over the years drifted more and more towards just focusing on economic development, just the digging wells, the Mm -hmm. building bridges, the teaching in the schools. And the Peace Corps has held fast to this even balance or somewhat even balance between cultural exchange and economic development. And anybody who studied any kind of economic development over the years knows it's fraught with problems. There are so many projects that do more damage than good or that are really successful for a couple of years and then they disappear. Mm. Um, 
the cultural exchange part is something that lasts forever. For me, for example, I was in Mali in West Africa from 92 to 94. Whenever I see a TV program or, you know, nobody op opens newspapers anymore, but when I scroll <laughs> through my phone so newspaper. in the media industry. <laughs> exactly. When I see Mali mentioned, I, I have a completely different focus on it. And I get very frustrated when I hear people talk about Africa like it's a country because I was there and I was in a very specific country and Malians would have been very upset if you had confused them with Senegalese or Ghanaians. Or, but yet it happens all the time. And, and that's, I think, where the, the strength of the Peace Corps really lies because volunteers are there for two years. Another thing that is pretty unique about the Peace Corps, you don't have us Americans going overseas for extended amounts of times like that other than in the Foreign Service. As you mentioned, you were assigned to Mali. What did you go in planning to do, and how did that turn out? <laughs> well, I was 22 when I joined the Peace Corps. I had just graduated from college. I had a degree in business, and I had a degree in theater. And so I was put into the small enterprise development sector. I had no illusions that I was going to you know, develop the heck out of this village, as my, <laughs> many people um, think the Peace Corps volunteer shows up and this is going to fix everything. And very soon it became clear that while they loved having me there, I was a curiosity. I did things differently than everybody else. It was kind of neat to watch me kind of the way you would have your local TV programming. I was I was the reality TV for, for my village. <laughs> um, there wasn't really an understanding of how I could possibly help. And it took... A long time. It took pretty much all two years for me to get to know the people well enough, to gain the trust enough that everybody felt comfortable to express to me what they actually needed. So I ended up um, teaching some English. I taught some geography. I worked with a guy who ran a small motorcycle shop, and um, we were working on accounting. The tricky part there was that he had a large family, as many people in Mali do. And he was very avoidant to write down any of his finances because he, he was illiterate, but he wanted me to teach him to read and write, but he didn't want to write down his finances, which at first was a little puzzling to me because I, of course, was the small enterprise development advisor. I was like, <laughs> okay, so let's let's do the small enterprise development. And he said, no, 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 I want to read and write, but I can't write this down because if I write this down, my entire family will descend upon me and they will all request money from me. And this is a culture where we share everything. And so I won't have a choice. I will have to give them the money and then my business will go under because I will not have any funding. So we creatively worked on finance and how, you know, how you plan it in your head. And he was very smart. He didn't need me to teach him how to run his business. He, he knew that very well. But we could talk about some, some concepts that if it were written down, this is how we would structure it. And that helped him kind of plan a little bit in his business. Not earth shattering, but I made a lifelong friend out of it. And then I also worked with a women's group that did pottery. And that was just inspiring to get to spend time with them and the generosity of spirit they had. Whenever I would come to visit, they would give me some food. They would give me water. It was so welcoming. And I hope I got to share a little bit of information. I would I was not a potter going into this, but I would dash back to Bamako to the capital and find any books I could find on pottery and tell them what I saw in there. And then they would tell me what they already knew or what might be helpful for them. And it helped us connect more than anything else. I'm not sure it did much for their pottery. Uh, they they already <laughs> knew what to do. <laughs> well, there's a lot of sentiment out there that the very idea of the Peace Corps sort of hinges on this concept of a savior complex. 
this idea that Americans can come in and somehow sort of change the world just by their presence. What are your thoughts about that? I think it's important to always think about that. I think whether this is uh, Americans coming into other countries, whether this is me telling my neighbor how they should be planting their yard, it really is this whole concept of humility. It's this notion of I can't walk in there assuming that I know what the solution is for you. When we first started doing A Towering Task, the documentary, we had this one quote from Aboriginal activist Alilla Watson that we used as our guidepost. She said, if you've come to help, you're wasting your time. If you've come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. Hmm. And to me, that was the whole notion of the Peace Corps. It's this, this is not about one person helping another because they have a power differential or a knowledge differential. It's about the realization that in a time of climate change, in a time of pandemics, in a time of mass migration, we are all connected. And if we don't work together, we're in deep trouble. Well, thank you, Alana. Thanks for joining us. Chandra, thanks so much for having me. Denver filmmaker Alana DeJoseph served in the Peace Corps in Mali, West Africa from 1992 to 1994. We spoke in April. Her documentary is called A Towering Task, the story of the Peace Corps. It's back on PBS stations this month. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.